This is Song. And this is Sarah. And this is Ething Ethical, where we try to make sense of all of the choices facing consumers every day. And we're rolling. Um, hey, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Hi from the motherland. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had good Korean food yet? Oh my gosh, the best Korean food. My mom left me just like, yeah, all of the good things, um, like black cod and sous vide octopus and all of these delicious side dishes. Um, and so I've been eating my way during quarantine out of her refrigerator. <laughs> um, oh gosh, and like, amazing. speaking of which, like, and food, I feel like I'm going to be, you know, particularly because I'm here, like, at my mom's house in the motherland, like a lot of the conversation from my end is going to be around that likely. Yeah, well, when you mentioned that um, people have been sort of asking, like, what are our consumption habits? And we were thinking yeah. about, like, what good things to talk about. And we decided to talk about food. That was kind of the way that my mind went as well. Much less about, like, here's what I do eat and here's what I don't eat. More like, what are the reasons why, based on, like, my family of origin or, like, the community I live in, that I eat the way I do? Totally. Um, and certainly there are like sustainable aspects of it or whatever, which, you know, we can touch on, but it's a lot more about like what I grew up eating and therefore what do I love? Like what makes my exactly. stomach feel full and soft? <laughs> yeah. I love that full and soft. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, and I think with a lot of folks, it's, you know, food's not just, it's not just like a form of consumption, right? For me, I know like it's also self-care and, it's also a thing that brings me joy, but it's also a way of like giving love and receiving love. And I just kind of felt like, you know, food is one of those things where you do make kind of almost the most impact with your dollars because it's, it's like a, it's a thing that you have to consume. Um, but it's also something that's like so intimately tied to your values um, in a way that that I think a lot of, you know, other kind of consumption may not necessarily be. And so in, in kind of, yeah, different ways. And so, and I think food also does touch on a lot of the other things that we've talked about in the past. And um, I think it'll be cool to just like talk more personally about, about our own consumption. So why I would love to know like for you, your family's Korean, you grew up eating Korean food. Is that like, did you always eat Korean food at home here in the US? Like, how does that translate to like what you all like used to eat every day versus like now what you would eat every day, like when you're in the US, not at your parents' house in Korea? Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably a combination of Korean food and non-Korean food. Um, but I guess kind of taking a step like a like a bigger kind of step back I think I mean the way I eat typically it's like you know when I'm cooking by myself or when I'm at home I will mostly just make myself kind of like vegetarian because it's um yeah because that's like what makes me feel good um and I'm also like I eat seafood um and I'll have that you know like once or twice a week 
Um, but then when I'm home and, you know, when my mom, like her way of kind of like showing me love, right, is to take care of me um, kind of like physically. And um, for that, it's like making me things that like make me feel good and, and like vegetables and seafood, like those are the things that make me feel the best. And so I think, yeah, I guess when I eat at home, I, I definitely, yeah, eat a lot of Korean food, but I also eat other types of food. And I think it's kind of within the confines of sort of like what makes me feel good. Um, and what, you know, sometimes when I'm like hungover or sad, um, like I reach for comfort foods and that tends to be more Korean for sure. How about you, Sarah? Um, so I, I was just thinking about what you said about like what makes you feel good. And, um, so I am super lactose intolerant, like mm. really, really, really lactose intolerant. And yeah. I didn't know that or I didn't realize that growing up. I like should have, I remember like eating a vegetarian lasagna when I was maybe like 15 and like throwing up all night and thinking like that was weird and just moving on, like never mm. questioning that like yeah. maybe something I was eating wasn't making me feel good. Um, and I mean, my, my mom's family, um, is partially from the Midwest and just like cooked very kind of what what could be considered like traditional American food so lots of like hot dishes or casseroles depending on which side of the the country you live on um and kind of like easy stir fries a lot of burgers I love hamburgers like I think hamburgers are probably like my favorite food um in all sorts of forms and I still like eat things that like structurally look like a hamburger all the time um but a lot of those foods are full of cheese and cream and so when I was in college and I finally realized that oh like if I don't put milk in my cereal in the morning and I put almond milk in my cereal instead I feel better oh if I also cut out yogurt I feel even better oh if I also cut out the cheese that I'm putting on my sandwich every day or like the macaroni and cheese I'm eating for dinner I feel even better um, and so that was kind of a, a transition for me and like what I eat and what like makes me feel good. Mm. Um, one sort of transition that I had about like what makes me feel good. Um, yeah. So eating kind of traditional American food, we didn't eat a lot of rice growing up, um, even though I, I grew up where pretty close to where a lot of rice is grown in California. Um, and then when I was in Peace Corps in Senegal, we had rice every day for lunch and sometimes two meals a day. And now like I probably eat some form of like rice and sauce or fried rice like three to five times a week if I'm cooking for myself. Mm. And so that is totally different than how I grew up. But that was definitely a like, yeah, like what, what makes me feel good um, and yeah. eating eating a lot of rice is something that is easy on my stomach, um, easy to digest, but also is delicious. And it's been fun to learn as an adult, to like cook meals that I didn't grow up eating, um, but mm. love to make now. I love that. Um, you sound like a Korean person, you know, we're also, we tend to be <laughs> as an ethnicity, um, fairly lactose intolerant. It really wasn't until um, 
you know, kind of like the American occupation of our country and all of that when, you know, that was introduced. Um, and in terms of, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the colonialism of food here, but I feel like, you know, we do tend to feel best when we eat things that are kind of like local to where we grew up or, you know, whatever it is, like you mentioned, you grew up around rice, but you didn't know that you did, right? Like it's something that is, it's like connected to the earth and connected to your body in a way, you know, regardless of whether you actually kind of ate a lot of it growing up. And I think in, you know, in Korea too, we also obviously eat a lot of rice um, and we eat a ton of vegetables um, and we do have, you know, quite a bit of seafood, I guess, in, um, in our food. We, I don't think traditionally we had a ton of like, you know, meat contrary to, I think, kind of the, the assumption that Korean barbecue is like the thing that we eat every day. Um, because I mean, we're, we are peninsula, we're surrounded by the ocean. Yeah, kind of interesting to think about um, different parts of the world and like, what lands and what, um, yeah, sort of like what surrounds them and how connected people are to the land, whether or not they, you know, yeah, whether or not they feel it, whether or not they know it. Was there was there anything as an adult that you read or learned or observed that either like changed your food habits or like made you think about something about how you were eating differently? So I guess, I mean, as an adult, the way that I eat now currently, um, again, sort of based around the things that make me feel the best um, wasn't always how I ate. So this is, you know, getting a little bit into my family's history. And, you know, to that point I made earlier about how um, my mom's, you know, one of her biggest forms of love is to to cook meals for us that are like nourishing and um, that make us feel healthy. And that looks actually different for every member of my family. Um, and so for my sister and my dad, like they feel best when they eat like red meat and they get, you know, have stomach aches when they eat too much seafood. Um, and it's like the opposite with me. And I, you know, eat leafy greens and um, like they eat, you know, root vegetables. And um, it's like centered on this like Eastern medicine, you know, doctor um, that we go to and um yeah, it's something that we kind of try to abide by. Um, and it's it's made our family really healthy since. And so I would say starting to go to that doctor as a family was the biggest kind of shift for me. You, know, you said you mentioned that yeah. you have started to kind of like test cooking out foods that you didn't necessarily grow up with. Do you feel like you've also kind of brought your, like the things that you've learned in your adult life um, back into your family as well? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I think as an adult, I mean, honestly, like realizing I was lactose intolerant was, was huge. Um, and then when I returned from the Peace Corps, um, I had some stomach issues, you know, (laughs) hit me up in the comments. If you've ever had a parasite, (laughs) happy to talk about what it does to your digestive system (laughs) and how you might have to change your eating habits. 
but there was a lot of food that was just really hard to eat. And so I stopped eating wheat and gluten of all types. I stopped eating like dark leafy vegetables um, because it turns out those are really hard to digest. Um, Yeah, I I just had to totally rethink how I was, was eating. Um, But I also have always kind of prioritized like eating really fresh and local. Um, When I was thinking about this earlier today, I realized that growing up in California really made me take for granted like fresh produce. Um, Because in California, like everything is local. I mean, that's not totally true, but it's it's pretty true. Like most of you can go to like your chain grocery store and you're getting produce that was grown like maybe a hundred miles away, but like potentially less, um, which, which is really amazing. And that certainly is not the case when I was living in Washington, DC or living in Connecticut, um, produce in grocery stores starts to look very sad in the winter Mm -hmm. because it's being trucked a really long way. Um, but, but anyways, so yeah, I, as an adult, I think that those have been the biggest factors in my diet is just like what I can eat. Um, So I ate like a lot of fried potatoes in those years because it felt good on my stomach. Um, Like fried potatoes always goes down easy, even if that's not the healthiest thing to have for dinner uh, most nights. But but it's so tasty. I know. Um, Champagne and French fries is like one of my favorite, like could probably just have that for dinner if it didn't make me feel horrible if that was all I ate for dinner. Um, but well, but yeah, I, as when we as... see each other next, that's gonna have to be our first meal together. <laughs> champagne and, champagne fries. and fries. I'm telling you. Also, okay. Speaking of of consuming local, um, since we're talking about food, so we both took wine class this year at um, business school, and I I feel like I actually learned a lot. I've always loved wine, but it was really cool to think about it um, from such a like an educational perspective, like really learning a lot about the wine. But one thing that I took from it um, that I don't know if you remember this, but were you there for the champagne day or champagne? Yeah, the Shake Shack and champagne. Okay. So we tried all sorts of champagnes and they were so delicious. And one of the first ones we tried, um, it's, let me pull this up so I can say it right. Um, so he like passed along the champagne and we didn't know what it was and we all tasted it and we're like, yeah, this is like a, like a good champagne. Like this is probably like an average champagne from, from France. And it was not, it was Gruet sparkling wine made in the champagne style from New Mexico. And it's like $15 a bottle. So if you are a fan of champagne, go get yourself some Gruet sparkling wine made in the champagne style from New Mexico. Um, It's amazing. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Um, I've actually been watching Better Call Saul in my quarantine, um, and it's been making me (laughs) want to go to New Mexico. Um, So I just just might hit up the vineyard or two while I'm there, I suppose. (laughs) Right? I I was never Um, thinking about like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to go to New Mexico one day and like go wine tasting. But I mean, we've yeah. been buying like many bottles of this every week um, to share with the family. Um, but That's oh, but so you good. you asked about like how kind of my eating kind of affects 
like the family in general um, or like how it kind of has been brought back. And, um, you know, I, I think it depends. I think sometimes I love going home and just like eating what like my mom or my dad will cook that are like the flavors of like my youth, right? Like my mom makes pot roast and I love it. And that's not something I ever make myself. Um, and it's delicious. And I just sort of like love tasting that, but I also like really love to cook. And so right now we're staying with um, my partner's parents and we have gotten really into cooking Georgian food. Um, We traveled, both of us traveled together for work. Um, Gosh, this must've been like four years ago to the Republic of Georgia. We had an amazing time. The sort of culture around sitting down for this huge meal and like, sharing lots of wine and eating a lot of different dishes together was so fun and so cool to be included in, um, for work. Uh, and so we, we bought a Georgian cookbook and have been um, experimenting with that. And I will say if you're vegan and are looking for just like some new flavors or new, um, recipes to try out, There are a lot of Georgian recipes that either are vegan or can be cooked vegan that are amazing and they don't taste like anything you've had before. Um, Their base is a walnut paste. So obviously if you're allergic to nuts, don't take this advice. But um, if you are looking for kind of like a replacement for a hummus that has like very different seasonings, tons of vegetables, you sort of mix the, the ground walnuts with like cooked carrots or beets or spinach. Um, it's really good. So that's been really cool to sort of share this, this food that we really love and have, have gotten like pretty good at cooking, um, with, uh, with his family. No, that's beautiful. Uh, I didn't know that about Georgian food. Um, I will also have to try some of that. (laughs) Um, I loved what you said about, you know, kind of the, the culture of, you know, having like cooking, having these meals together, um, and all kind of like coming together and, and sharing in what, you know, feels very communal. And um, I, I think that's also, I think that's like a big part of like eating and, and drinking for me is it's, it's more kind of more about the, the social part sometimes. Um, so the reason, I mean, A, like I, I didn't, I couldn't make it to champagne class, but um, for <laughs> me, that class is more just having the opportunity on Monday nights to like wind down and get a little bit tipsy with my friends. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know what, I don't know that I've taken away um, a ton from the class necessarily, but I just have like the fondest memories of, um, of like taking that class with my friends and like, you know, having like a fun um, Monday evening thing at school to look forward to. Yeah. Um, I love that. So I love the focusing on the social part of it. I feel like I, I eat and I cook so differently by myself or socially. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think that if, you know, if we sort of take a step into the, you know, part of the direction that things this podcast might cover, when you're looking at like, what is like sustainable consumption and like, how does that connect to your food? When I'm cooking at home, I cook almost vegan. I do eat eggs, but because I'm lactose intolerant, I'm not eating any dairy products. And I just don't tend to cook meat at home by myself because it's, I just don't. Um, And so I'll eat almost vegan most of the time. 
But then when I when I cook for people, if I if it's like a large meal, I probably will cook meat or I'll cook fish or seafood. Um, and and I think at least for me, looking at that balance of what I'm eating for lunch every day, breakfast every day, kind of on my own versus what I might share with my family or friends for dinner or like a big um, event. Uh, It's kind of a nice balance to have those be like different types of food. Yeah, you took the words like right out of my mouth. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I think, I think, yeah, no. (laughs) This is probably why we need a third perspective on this. Oh my God. Would someone like to Um, come in and like disagree with us? Um, Just be like, no, you're wrong. There is a different perspective that needs to be thought of here. Um, yeah, but like, you know, we think about this word sustainability and it's such like, um, it's such, a like a, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it's like, you know, it means so many different things. I think, you know, when you think about the word sustainability, like you think, um, you know, the environment, right. But I think it also has other meanings, right? Like what is something that you can do without, giving up or without burning out. For the environment, it means making sure that it is going to be, um, right, like able to sustain life and, you know, whatnot. But for ourselves too, right, like it means something that we're going to be able to continue on with and not kind of burn out or um, get turned off from. And I think like with food, it's so, it's, it's a thing that we have to do every day. Um, and so I think making choices that make your, um, I guess, make your consumption around your values, like it has to be something that's sustainable and that you can kind of stick to and that you don't feel bad about. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm kind of the same way when I'm cooking again, when I'm cooking by myself, like it's usually, you know, vegetarian, mostly vegan with eggs. Um, But when I'm cooking for other people, like it's my way of showing them love. And so, you know, for those of you who have, you know, who I've like gifted Korean braised beef to, like, I don't, I don't eat meat. And so I never cook it for myself, but like, it's a labor of love. It takes, you know, like 36 hours for me to, you know, cook it from one end to to the next. And so you know, if you've tasted it and if I've um, gifted it to you like that, you know, know that you're loved, <laughs> you know who you are. So I think, yeah, I think food means, you know, different things at different times. And um, it's just like something that's so intimately connected to, yeah, to so much um, that it's not just about consumption. Sometimes like the choices are different and um, it's a much more kind of a balanced calculus that we make. Um, And I think, I don't know, something that I kind of like want to bring up, you know, speaking of, you know, vegan and vegetarianism is like, please don't shame people. Like, please don't shame people about their eating because like, you don't, you don't know what their stories are, right? Like you don't know what, yeah, you don't know what is tied into their, to their eating, you know, eating habits, right? Like whether it's um, like mental health related, whether it's cultural, whether it's um, things related to, you know, socioeconomic status, right? Like there's so many different things that 
play into it. Um, and so it's like one of my pet peeves when I overhear people shaming people about the way they eat, especially around kind of like veganism. So I remember like, it's still kind of like, you know, stuck with me to this day. Like I remember at, um, at SOM, you know, there were these two women in front of me and, um, one of the women was picking up like a roast beef sandwich. Um, and her friend goes, ew, are you seriously thinking about eating beef? And her friend just looked shocked. Um, and she couldn't like put the sandwich down. Right. But I mean, just like the level of like public shaming that that was, um, I, I don't know, like in, in my mind, I was just wondering, right. Like what, um, what the person who picked up the roast beef, like what her, what her story is, right? Like why, like what her, you know, food consumption habits are and why. Please don't channel your anger and shaming at your friends um, because they're not the ones attacking your values. Like, A, like check your ethnocentrism and like channel that anger and shaming to, to I would say like to industry, right? To like the bigger players that are actually set up to, um, that are actually attacking our values, right? All that to say, of course, with personal consumption and the choices that we make, we do make a difference and it does matter. But that shouldn't be the the kind of like the target of anger or shame. Well, and, and I just wanted to add in how like young women, especially, but young people in general, like think about their bodies and what they're consuming and how distorted that can be um which is which is a history that you just never know sort of how people have dealt with that or what their experience with that has been and so questioning an individual's consumption can be super triggering and you just would have no idea because that just might be part of their past in in a really serious medical way or or in a way that's been hidden um and i think that's one of those things that when it's so great to be able to talk about your consumption of food in kind of the framing that we took of like food is love and I love my body. So I want to eat things that make me feel good. And sometimes the thing that makes me feel good is a lot of like sugary cake or like really fatty French fries that, you know, might actually make me feel bad afterwards, but there's kind of an emotional Mm. need that that fills. Um, and, and food is also love that you can share with someone. But when you look at it as like you should eat something or you shouldn't eat something else, you're piling on so many expectations onto yourself, onto others. Um, and especially when you're talking about it with others or to others, as, as the case may be, you just have no idea, like you said, what that person's story is. Like, why are they eating that thing? Um you know, and, and I think that if you want to ask like, oh, I didn't know you ate meat, like, that's cool. Like, do you want to talk about it? That can be a totally different conversation that you just find something out about the person. Um, I feel like the way you say things can totally change how someone uh, sort of gets to experience their life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I love the point you made about, you know, food is about love and it's love not just for others and others for us, but um, us for our own bodies and our own selves and our and our own kind of mental health and um, and sometimes that 
does have to take precedence over over sort of the outward kind of like activism and raging um, that we do in our in our daily lives. So, Sarah, I mean, you had lived in like different parts of the world and, you know, have traveled quite a bit. And it seems like you um, have kind of baked it into your daily life to like bring back a little bit of of that culture into your own life. To, to your own lives here um, in the United States. What do you think um, sort of the connection is between, or what have you seen as the connection? What are some of the things that you've seen as the connection between food and culture in other parts of the world? Hmm. Such a good question. Um, I feel like the the obvious one, which is like literally what we're talking about, but like you show people you love them through food <laughs> um, and and making something that's like nourishing and delicious. And um, I think the other part is that like people just connect over food. Like I think about when I was a kid and my mom would like have coffee dates with her friends. And that, I mean, that just sort of felt very normal. Like, of course, you know, my mom would do that. That's what women like her do. And I didn't really think much, much more of it. Um, Or maybe people would come over for brunch and there would be like coffee cake and fruit and always lots of coffee. And, um, you know, there'd be women sitting around talking, kind of sharing over coffee. And I just never thought about that being like a universal experience because, I think coffee, cake, and coffee in the morning are like a pretty quintessential American thing. I don't think that there's something that like quite looks the same in in many other cultures, but I think that there are um, there are foods and drinks and situations that serve the same purpose. So when I was living in Senegal, um, you drank tea. Like that was how people shared. Very much a like North African tradition of very sweetened mint and green tea um, that's been like boiled for a really long time. So this is not like a a lightly um, steeped green tea. This is like kind of like knock your knock your socks off, caffeinated, bitter, but so sweetened that the tea is almost mm-hmm. a um, uh, like a gel. <laughs> like it's like the only way I can describe the the viscosity of this tea. Um, and it's delicious. It's like really high in caffeine, really high in sugar. Uh, but people would sit and make um, three rounds of this tea. So you'd like cook the tea leaves three times. And you might be sitting there for like an hour and a half or two hours while this happens. And that was just their version of like the thing you do when you're socializing. And so it might be super casual, just like the thing that you're doing with the people who are living in your household. Or it would definitely be what you would do if like a visitor comes. Like, of course, you're going to feed them. That's universal. Everybody gets fed. But I just really appreciated this idea that like you're always sharing something. You're sharing tea. You're sharing and you're sharing something valuable, right? Like tea, sugar um, are expensive things. They're valuable, um, but they're also like products of leisure, right? You're just sitting there and drinking tea and talking. Um, and I just really, oh gosh, especially while we were in business school and everything was like so planned and we were heading down to New York for coffee chats, which never had coffee at them, <laughs> which is so funny that you can, that they continue to be called coffee chats, but they're just, they're just networking meetings. 
um, when what I really wanted to do was like have a two hour like coffee chat with my friend. Like that is something that um, I love doing, but there just never seemed to be time. Um, and so I think that at least, I don't know about right now, everything is so, is so different in the pandemic um, from not being able to see people to the schedule being so different. But I just would really love to think about sort of bringing back some of that, that slowness and just sort of enjoying mm. sharing, sharing a drink. And maybe it's a, a happy hour drink, but like sharing a drink, um, sharing a small bit of food with friends, um, sort of celebrating like the time you get to spend together through that food. Yeah, I love that. The slowness, I think that's, um, I, I feel like the world is kind of waking up to again. Um, thanks to the pandemic. Um, and I feel like we see that in so many parts of the world, like where the importance is not on just like the working day, but like the things that break up that working day where you go out for, um, for a cha at the cha stand, right? Or um, you go out for a cup of coffee with your coworkers, whatever it is. Um, and it's just like that kind of like that snow, that slowness and that grounding that you almost bring into whatever um to whatever you're doing I think is like I think it's so beautiful and I hope it will be something that we could yeah all bring back and um I don't know hopefully make more of a thing um in Korea where it's not about networking whether when it's not about you know having some other kind of ulterior motive but just like of being and of being with um thinking about food and again, like being here um, in Korea, it's just been, I've been kind of reflecting on, on like the history and culture that's embedded into food. And I, you know, I'll only speak from, I guess, from like my perspective um, and, and with, with my, about, about my culture. Right. But um I mean, you look at sort of the evolution of our food even, and it's so interesting um, the the kind of like interesting tidbits of history that have been embedded into our food over the years. Korea has had a really fraught history um, in the last century because of colonialism by the Japanese and then war and occupation by the United States and the way that like that has changed the consumption of food in our country, um, amongst other things, of course, as I've been kind of reflecting on that, like it always makes me a little bit angry. Um, but it's also, I think it's really interesting. And I think knowing sort of the history of, of food and, and the impacts that different kind of historical moments have had on food. Um, it's like, it's really, it's important to think about because it gives you a sort of a new appreciation of the culture that the food is coming from. Most people, when they think of Korean food, their mind immediately goes to like Korean barbecue. And that's absolutely not the way that we like eat on a you know day-to-day -day basis. It wasn't, I think it wasn't until the American occupation of the country after World War II um, when, you know, like 
first, first of all, like the industrialization of food here, it was kind of um, brought by Japanese imperialists when Korea became what they called like the breadbasket of um, like the Japanese army. And so they used Korea basically during that time um, to just be a place where they created food for Japanese troops abroad. And so that meant that for Koreans living in Korea, you know, their food was rationed and um, they, you know, had basically not even rice anymore because all of the rice was, most of the rice was sent um, overseas to feed Japanese troops um, and instead kind of grains that um, we, you know, didn't used to eat that much of, um, whether it's like barley and wheat and things like that, um, became a bigger part of our, of our food. Um, and then after the Japanese left, um, at, you know, when they sort of surrendered after the, after World War II, um, American for American troops came in, um, and I won't, you know, get too much into the Korean war and like what happened as like, a vestige of the Cold War and all of that. Um, but during that time too, and I think this is something that people don't really talk about, but when, you know, the Americans came in to occupy Korea, they also, you know, rationed food. Um, and I think they maybe thought that they were trying to do things um, thoughtfully, but you know, when people were protesting about the very small rations that they were getting, um, you know, America, uh, the United States kind of implemented this new system where they um, brought in complete free market principles. And as you can imagine, if you're going from a complete like rations, ration system to complete free market, like it doesn't end well. Um, and so it led to, you know, extreme inflation and extreme unemployment um, and people going hungry. And so they you know, took it back again and um, started a ration system, right? And so, you know, there are stories from that time of, um, of, of Koreans where they had so little to eat and the things that they were given, the, the little that they were, you know, rationed were um, like enough rice to eat, you know, maybe once a day. Um, and so they would like mix into it you know, soybean dregs and um, like put in weeds and stuff like that. And like they would make a congee out of it because, you know, that would help them feel full for longer, um, which is not very long. And so there's, I feel like the history of our country for, uh, you know, a significant part of our, our recent history was that it was an, an under control um, by outside forces, kind of like using it as a geopolitical pawn. And that meant that the Korean people had to go without um, a lot. And so during the, during the, the American application, um, I think that's when the industrialization of, um, of beef and meat also started happening. Um, and so yeah, with that, um, there was kind of like, you know, eventually rising consumption of meat and sort of the place that meat has in our culture now. Um, it's almost it almost feels like an overcompensation for all of the times that um, that it was like taken from us and that it was, you know, withheld from us for the benefit of um, of our colonizers. Right. And so 
And that's just right, again, from my own history, and I'm sure every country, every culture has their own history of, of you know, the reason why um, food, what they eat, how they eat, right, um, comes from these kind of, yeah, comes from so much history and things um, that we don't really think about at, when we're just, when we're just kind of um, indulging or when we're just um, like observing or when we're even when we're just when we're just eating on the day to day. So yeah, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up and we're able to speak so in such detail about kind of a specific culture that you're connected to and like how you think about the food that you're eating today is influenced by the history. And I think that really speaks to maybe like, I don't know, a, a piece of the ethical consumption of food is just very simply like not imposing what your expectations, standards, way of eating, way of doing things on anybody else, right? I think that obviously that is is such a generalization that the history of colonialism like can't even begin to to define, but it also does help us say like, you know, what what is the ethical consumption of food? And I think a piece of that is is understanding where our food comes from, understanding where our types of dishes comes from, um, and and like knowing those histories, right? There's so, like you said, there's so many dishes from throughout the world that they the way the dishes are came from some sort of hardship, and so it's so important to kind of acknowledge that and also say like today, part of our ethical consumption is not imposing some sort of restriction or expectation on anyone else or any other group of people. I think, you know, something that I'll add to what it means to be ethical, an ethical consumer in terms of food is, as you mentioned, um, right, like not imposing your own kind of personal choices or passing judgment or shaming people. And again, you know, like checking your own Kind of ethnocentrism around it, um, but you know the consumption of food absolutely does have an impact on the environment. It absolutely has an impact on human rights of people who are working in the supply chains that provide our food. And you know there are ways of of kind of buying and um, of consuming and, and using our dollars, and also you know, changing our food systems for good, that's not in a way that's based on um, kind of like judging or shaming individuals, but targeting those in industries and at industries that have the power to change the systems, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's definitely with so many things, but like it's a both and. Like make your individual decisions, understand the impact, see see what you can do, you know, think about what you can. What does your... What does your brain have space to, to, to hold when you're thinking about your consumption of food? Um, and at the exact same time, look to those systems and say, like, how can I hold these systems accountable? Are there structural reforms? Does that come in the form of legislation? Um, kind of what are those what are those levers that I can help push systematically kind of at the same time that I'm thinking about my individual consumption without sort of you know, like, like you said earlier, without kind of pushing blame onto any one consumer group for being the, the reason that the system is the way that it is. 
So I have an important question for you. Uh, <laughs> in and out or Shake Shack? Oh my gosh, In and Out, 100%. <laughs> right? I, yes. I mean, like, okay, I grew up in California and I don't know if this is like rumor or true, but they built an In and Out in the town I went to high school in, um, which you'll notice is not the town I grew up in. That's kind of relevant to like how small all of these towns were. But um, anyways, there's an in and out right on the freeway. And it was like this major thoroughfare from the city to the mountains, like people going um, like back and forth on the weekends for vacation. And I heard that that was at least at the time, the highest grossing in and out. Um, and this was when there was only in and out in California. So the highest grossing mm. in and out in the state. But yeah, I like high school, I probably ate in and out at least once a week. So I was not joking that I love burgers. <laughs> my, if, if memory serves me correct and like mom, one of my listeners can like tell me if, if this is true, <laughs> but probably ate in and out at least once a week. And then um, my dad hunts and we would have elk meat wow. in our freezer and we would do elk burgers at least once a week. So minimum out of seven days, two dinners was burgers in high school. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So good. Um, I wasn't introduced to In-N-Out until we moved to California when I was in college, but I don't know, something about like that perfect kind of balance of like the crunchy of the lettuce and the crisp bite of the onion and just like that balance with um, the fresh uh, French fries. I don't know. It's just like something about it just like brings me so much joy. Um, and I will say I don't, I don't like typically eat meat. It doesn't, it's like, you know, one of the things that make me, I think feel not the greatest, but I am a sucker for a burger. Um, and so <laughs> like no shame. So I'm glad we agree on that very important point. I mean, to be clear, also ate a lot of Shake Shack when I was living in New Haven. And like, that was the option because again, yeah. I love Shake And Shake Shack is also delicious. Um, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. You can find us online at songandsarah.com or on Instagram at F-I-N-G underscore ethical. Let us know what you want to hear us talk about. And please rate us wherever you get your podcasts so more people can find us.